Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father, Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have pre- uh, preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, do not be joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed Be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we we thank you for the, uh, the many wonders that are found in your word. I pray that these, uh, this ancient text you uh, would now apply to our lives here. That you'd send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, um, to reveal the secrets of our hearts, that we might fall down and say that God is really among us. And so come and be our teacher. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would minister to them, um, that you would uh, come down and, uh, and care for your children, feed your children, feed us as our souls are hungry to hear from you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So uh, this morning, uh, our topic is is one of the most important topics for the the vision and life of this church. Actually, it's kind of uh, the the heart, the hope, um, the the energizing truth of, you know, the foundation of this community uh, right here. And that topic is the topic of grace. And um, I'll tell you why grace is so, and some of you, you know, I read that passage and you're like, huh, that was about grace? I, I didn't hear that in those words I just read, but let me just, uh, let me just explain this, first of all. Let me just tell you why grace is so important, a topic for a community like ours. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with uh, someone after church, and we were talking about the, different, the similarities and differences between the different religions of the world. And, um, and the gal had, had made a comment that, uh, that the Dalai Lama had, had uh, said that the purpose of religions is to make good people. The purpose of religions is to make good people. And that, that's actually an interesting statement, you know, because essentially what it's saying is that the perfe- purpose of religions is uh, to make, humans be- make us become human, become what we were made for. And um, as we were talking about that, though, um, it came up that religions can uh, make people human, make people good in a way that's healthy and life-giving, but also religions can make people good in a way that's actually quite violent to people. You know, they can, uh, uh, they can use manipulation and guilt and control and coercion uh, to take people and try to make them good. So actually the business of making good people can actually be uh, a pretty uh, dangerous business to get into. And so the question is, how, uh, how do people become good without controlling them, without burdening them, without guilting them into some religious ideal? 
without the coercion, without the control, without stripping them of their, uh, of their humanity and their goodness. And that's a big question for us, right? Because, you, you know, you come to church every week and you're, you're going to hear from God about what does God say about your life and what you should believe and how you should live. And uh, how are we going to become, you know, a loving, a kind, compassionate, self-controlled, truth-speaking community that's really full of life and that's not just being burdened and, uh, and straight-jacketed or controlled or manipulated? How do, how do we do that, Right? And, um, well, there's a, there's a well-known story uh, about C.S. Lewis that um, there was a, uh, a re- comparative religions conference where there were uh, a number of uh, professors, w- world experts on religions who had come to a conference, and they were all having this discussion about the religions of the world, and, and they were trying to say, you know, what is it about Christianity that is uh, unique? What is the unique contribution that Christianity makes to the religions of the world? And, you know, some said, well, maybe it's the incarnation that God became a man in Jesus. And some people said, well, you know, there's other mythologies where the gods came down and they walked among us. You know, it doesn't seem like incarnation is the, is the unique thing. And then, you know, someone else said, well, maybe it's the resurrection of Jesus. And they said, well, you know, there's other mythologies about the dying God that rises again. And then C.S. Lewis kind of walked in. He was, he was late and kind of stumbled in and he said, what's all this rumpus about? And, and they told him the question that they were debating. And they said, you know, what's the unique thing about Christianity? He says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is the thing that makes Christianity unique. Grace is the way that God uh, transforms us. And um, it is when we encounter and experience grace in our life um, that God begins to make us into who, into who, we've been, uh, who we're meant to be. And by grace, I mean that God takes sinners people who have profoundly failed to love him and to love the people around them. He takes them and forgives them and embraces them and makes them his children and he pledges to them eternal life. That, that's what grace is, giving to people what they don't deserve. And, um, and so that we don't change by someone telling us again and again that we need to be better. We change by hearing what God has done for us. And so um, this is really the essence of the vision of this church is that we preach grace, grace, over and over again. And we need to hear it over and over again. And as we hear about grace, we slowly begin to let go of control of our life. We let go of our defensiveness. We let go of our pride. And we begin to be soft and gentle and compassionate and kind to the people around us. The grace lives in us and it transforms us. Okay, so that's at the heart of this, uh, of this church. Now, this passage that I just read, you might ask, what does that have to do with grace? Uh, you, you might, that might have been an obscure passage. And, um, well, what's happening in this passage is Jacob's at the end of his life. And he has, uh, he is now has his 12 sons before him. He's about to die. And he's going to pray a prophetic prayer on each of the sons. And these first three prayers that we read, the first three sons of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are his three oldest sons. And each of these sons has, earlier in Genesis, committed a heinous sin against Jacob and against others. Um, These are deep, deep, profoundly sinners. And as a result, each of them has disqualified themselves as the leader of the brothers, as the heir of, of, the, of the blessing, of the promise. It's actually going to pass to the fourth son, who we're going to read about next week, who is Judah. Judah becomes the one who receives the blessing. 
And, um, and so in a, uh, in, a th- in, in a sense, what I just read to you aren't blessings. They're actually anti-blessings. They sound like judgments on these three sons. And yet woven into the severity of these prayers is a surprising grace. There is grace present here. And I think the reason why this is a helpful passage for us is we think about grace is because there's different ways to view grace. You know, is grace just kind of, you know, God is a teddy bear and he wants to just hug everyone and come and it's just like, he's Santa Claus, just come and sit on my knee and what do you want for Christmas? Is that what grace is? Grace is far more robust. It is far deeper, richer, earthy. And I think we get a, 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 a taste of that rich, robust grace in this passage. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to highlight five, five qualities of grace um, that maybe aren't the ones that we always hear, that we see in this passage. And this is what they are. First of all, that grace comes through the sovereignty of God. Grace is, is an act of God's sovereignty. Second of all, uh, grace comes through the holiness of God. Grace does not negate ho- God's holiness. Grace comes through his holiness. Third, grace comes through discipline. Okay, those three are the, are the hard truths of grace. But then fourth, grace comes even to the worst sinners. God offers his grace to even the worst sinners. And last, grace comes through the cross, ultimately. So we're going to look at these five things. And the first is this, that grace comes through the sovereignty of God. And uh, I know for some of you, you know, coming to our church, you know, that God is sovereign and that he's in control of everything might be something you feel like you hear a lot here and I'll just tell you the reason for that is because it's on pretty much every page of the Bible and so you know I just go right through books of the Bible and we keep coming up and here it is um, again and what that means the fact that grace God's free grace to sinners giving us what we don't deserve is an act of of God's sovereign grace uh, means uh, that it is a gift. It is his initiative. It's not something that we go and seek out and we pursue of ourselves and, you know, we use our intellect and our spiritual searching to go find. It's something that he gives to us of his own accord. It's more like a king coming and just announcing pardon to people that, and giving them things that they don't deserve and they haven't even asked for. And um, the first thing that will happen, that means, when we've begun to encounter grace, is we realize that we are ultimately not in control of our lives. You know, as American Western people, we absolutely have just been trained to think, I am ultimately the one who's in control of my life. I determine everything that's going to happen. I make my own decisions. I create my own reality. And um, the Bible is always pushing against that, saying that God is the true sovereign king. And grace uh, is, is at the center of that. It says that I can't find God. I need him to come find me. And you can see that Jacob has learned this truth about God's grace. Verse 1. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. What he says is that God's work in his children's life and their descendants after them is something that has been appointed by God. God is the king. He is writing the story. He is planning it out. He is in control. He's overseeing it. And his work in their lives is not something that they earn or that they plan out or that they intellectually figure out. They don't find grace. Grace finds them. Grace comes and finds them. And um, which means 
that grace appears in your life, it's not like a vending machine. I think we often think about God's love is kind of something that's uniformly just spread out. Or, you know, it's kind of like a vending machine where you, you put in a quarter, and if you want some grace, you know, or it's not even a quarter. Maybe you just push a button. You don't have to pay anything. But you push a button, and out pops a thing of grace, and now I have grace. But, um, and, th- and that it's now the same for everyone. You know, in a vending machine, everyone gets the same... Butterfinger that comes out. It's the same. That's not how grace works. Grace is deeply personal. And it's deeply personal to each one of our lives. And it's totally different how God's going to pursue us. Um, and, and so he comes and, and grace looks different in each of our lives. Even as Christians. You know, God's grace to each of us is different. We have different gifts. Some of us, you know, understand the Bible better than others. Some of us are better at caring for the poor than others are. Some are better at hospitality. Some are better at evangelism. Some just have encounters of God's grace. They experience that God is near them and loves them in ways that other people don't. Our experience of God's grace is radically different because it is personal. It is unique to each one of us. The sovereign king has decided how he's going to work in each one of our lives individually. And what we see is we go through these 12 blessings that Jacob's putting, these prophetic blessings he puts on his sons. They're all different. They're experiencing God in different ways. And, you know, there's a great scene in the end of the Gospel of John uh, where after Jesus' resurrection, he's walking with Peter. And, uh, and the, the Apostle John's walking behind him. And Peter says, you know, what about, what's going to happen with this guy back here? And he points to John. And Jesus has that great response where he says, if, he, if, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He doesn't tell us other people's stories. He only tells us our story. And his work in our life is, is his decision of how he is going to reveal himself to us and come into our life and work in our life. And it's not like the other people that are sitting here. You can't compare stories because they're different. It is unique. And so one of the obvious questions of that is if grace comes through the sovereign act of God, um, we're out of control of what he's going to do. Then one of the questions you might ask is, is it happening in my life? Is God working in my life? Am I experiencing grace? Has he made a move towards me? There's a lot of ways to answer that. Let me just try to say a couple briefly. One way that you know that grace has begun to work in your life is you have come to see your need of God. Have you come to see your need of him? The The one thing that repels God is pride. It is self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. I don't need God. But when you have come to see your own poverty, that I am desperately in need, I can't save myself, I'm lost, I can't figure out my own life, and I need God to work in my life. If that's happened in you, grace has begun to work. And let me just tell you, if you're here... And your heart is even kind of open to, you know, I'm just reading some ancient text from, this was, you know, written 3,500 years ago, and you actually want to listen to this, and you care, (laughs) that means grace is what work in your life. God has begun to work in your heart before you even asked him, and he's stirring up inside of you. And, um, And so grace comes to us, first of all, through God's sovereignty, through him coming to us, not us coming to him. And you know what that means? Is that the first thing that grace does is it destroys pride. And it humbles us. And it says, I'm not the one in control. God is the one in control. Okay? So the first thing about grace, grace comes through the sovereignty of God. The second thing we see in this passage, though, is that grace also comes through the holiness of God. 
Grace comes through the holiness of God. And uh, the reason, one of the reasons this is important is because for many people, when they learn about grace, that God is really a friend to sinners. He is a friend to broken people. He's a friend to people who rebel against him and uh, don't know how to love people, don't know how to have a family, don't know how to have relationships and friendships, don't know how to worship God, don't know about the Bible. He is a friend to people who are, are, are needy. We begin to say, well, maybe that means that God doesn't care about sin anymore. He just, he doesn't talk about sin anymore. He doesn't talk about bad things. He'll never, you know, he'll never bring a negative thought into my mind. He only tells me again and again that he loves me. Now, he does love us, but one of the things that we see in this passage is that here are the people of God. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is God's chosen nation. And the first three pronouncements God's going to make on them is he's going to tell them their sin. And actually, uh, both these sins, uh, well, I'll I'll get to that in a minute. Um, here are Jacob's three oldest sons, and Jacob is going gonna, is gonna to make a prophetic announcement on them. And in all three of their cases, they have a very serious sin that has disqualified them from being the kind of firstborn of the family. And it's going to pass on uh, to Judah. And I, wanna, I want you to listen to what Jacob says to each of them as he prays over them. And the first is Reuben. Reuben is the oldest firstborn of, of, of the family. And uh, back in Genesis 35, there is this one little verse. It, you probably, if you've read through Genesis, you may not have even noticed it. But it says uh, that Reuben went up, uh, so, so Jacob has, has two wives and he has these two kind of concubines slash wives slash girlfriends, you know, that he has kids with. So he, he's, he has these four wives, which by the way, you know, if you're here and you say, what, what's the deal with all the multiple wives in the Bible? You know, does the Bible say that's okay? I'll tell you one thing about this family. You read about this family where there's four wives? This is a family with some serious, you know, family system dysfunction. And this is not a family you want to emulate. And actually what you find over and over in the Bible is whenever men have multiple wives, it is never a happy situation. So the Bible does not encourage that um, in the least bit. Um, but what it says back in Genesis 35 is Reuben... The confident, strong, oldest brother who wanted to be in control of the family, he goes up and he sleeps with one of his dad's wives, his, his stepmom or mother-in-law. Um, a, a betrayal of his father, and um, obviously uh, d- something like that does tremendous damage to a family. And you can hear that that little one verse that's back in Genesis 35, it, 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 just, it was just stated and then it was silent all the way until now. And then this is what we read in verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall, uh, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. That, that last thing is you can hear Jacob's heartache. Like, look at what this did to our family. This is, a serious, this is a serious sin, and this cannot be the leader of God's people. He's been disqualified as a leader of God's people. Now, he hasn't been kicked out of God's people. He's still one of God's people. And yet, he's lost his station there. God's holiness still faces, still names sin. He doesn't pretend like it's not there. And then you see it also with Simeon and Levi. Now, Simeon and Levi, if, um, if you go back to Genesis 34, there's a, a, a story where uh, a young man um, actually uh, rapes Simeon and Levi's sister, Dinah. And they are so enraged that they go to this young man's town, Shechem, and uh, they make a deal. They lie to the, to the men of Shechem, and they say, listen, you can marry our daughter, 
but, uh, but you have to have all the men in your town circumcised. And so they all get circumcised. All these men, are, are grown men, are circumcised. And while they're healing, Simeon and Levi go into the town with swords and slaughter all of them, all the men of a whole town. And even though it was right for them to be angry about the crime that was done against their sister, it was a way uh, overreaction. Um, it was totally unjust. And, um, and so here... Um, Jacob, they too have disqualified themselves. They can't be the leaders of God's people. And so this is, this is what Jacob says to them. Simeon, uh, verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so um, these three are not rejected from God's people, but their sin is still addressed. And so what that means is that receiving grace, that God loves me even as a sinner, does not just give me license to go on sinning and say, well, God doesn't talk about sin anymore and I can just go on sinning. It doesn't do that. And I'll tell you one reason why that's, it's really important that even as we talk about grace, that we maintain the holiness of God. Um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a, a famous uh, pastor from uh, the, the first part of the 20th century. He's a German uh, Lutheran pastor. And uh, uh, during the rise of the Nazi party in Germany, there's this big question, historical question, of why were all these Christians in Germany agreeing to be a part of, of the Nazi party. Why did they go along with this? I mean, this was just brutal. This was wicked. It was violent. They were slaughtering people. And you imagine, this is the same kind of sin with, with Simeon and Levi. And why were they, they just going along with this? How could they have been so blind? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his most famous book that he wrote, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, begins by him talking about something called cheap grace. And what he said was, what the German people had done is that they had learned about from Luther. They were Lutherans, and they had learned from Luther. Luther was the champion of that you are accepted by God by free grace. You just accept it by faith. He was the champion of that. And so they came to see, well, that's fine. I go to God, and I believe in some truths that the Bible says, and now I'm forgiven by God. And now I'll go, go along with my life. And cheap grace was just a mental assent to say, yeah, fine. Uh, I'll accept that so that God, God will accept me and forgive me of my sins, but then I'll just go on living. And I've never applied that grace to think, think through it, in, it throughout my life. And as a result, they became blind uh, to the violence and the wrongdoing. They didn't love their neighbor. It hadn't transformed them. It hadn't worked into their heart. And, 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 they, and they, weren't no longer, they were not following Christ. And grace does not mean that sin is no longer an offense to God. God remains the God who loves goodness. God hates violence and oppression and selfishness. God always stands against these things. And so grace, first of all, what we see in these verses is that grace is not contrary to the holiness of God. He remains holy. And yet grace is one of the beautiful qualities of God's holy character. It's a part of his character to show grace. But this leads uh, to a third truth about grace. So first, grace comes through God's sovereignty. It comes through God's, the holiness of God. But third also, this is the third hard truth about grace. Grace also comes through discipline. Grace comes through discipline. That God's grace may have an element of severity to it. 
It's a severe love, a severe mercy. And I want you to look again at Reuben's blessing. Look, look at the, the, the switch that happens in the middle of this blessing in verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. There's this, this declaration of Reuben's strength and gifts and ability and, uh, and all these things that, uh, that you know, make him this great man. And then all of a sudden there's this switch and he says, but you are unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to uh, your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What's happening here is um, Reuben's strength Reuben's power, his gifts as a human being, his capability. You know, he was confident, he was strong, he was wise, he was the oldest son, he had the status, the worldly status as the oldest son, had created in him a pride. And so the question is, what does God's grace look like in someone like that who's confident and, and, and feels a sense of entitlement so much that he would go and, and sleep with his father's wife? How, what, is, what's, what does grace look like in someone's life like that? Grace is for them to be brought low. For God to bring them low, to be humbled. And I know um, that for some of you, uh, God has done that in your life, or at various times in your life, where um, you would become self-reliant. You were going to live your own life. There was a sense of pride and entitlement to God. And so he brought a disciplining hand into your life to, to, to actually to draw you to himself, because he wanted to give himself to you. I'll just tell you, I, I know this, I've had this happen, this is a regular pattern in my life as a pastor. And as, uh, you know, as I become, try to rely on my own intellect or my knowledge of the Bible or, you know, what I learned in seminary as I lead a church, and many times I know when I can feel the disciplining heavy hand of God upon me. There's a heaviness on my heart. There's a burden And uh, if you know that experience, God's hand of discipline being heavy upon you, you know also that he does it in kindness and love. Why is he doing that? It's because he wants me to turn away from trusting in my own strength, my own ability, my own accomplishments, and to turn to him. He He wants to take things away from me only to give me himself. And so a part of grace is it includes God's loving, kind, and discipline, and that's what he's doing in Reuben's life. And I'll tell you, this is also a grace not just to Reuben, to bring Reuben low, but it's also a grace to the people of God. Imagine if this guy is the leader of the people of God. They're going to have a tyrant, and he's reckless. And so God has got to be kind to his people and protect them. And so uh, Reuben has lost his status. And so discipline is a part of grace. Okay? So now listen, these are the hard truths about grace. Before, um, the first thing that we must say about grace is that the God who offers us grace in the gospel... It is the grace of a sovereign, holy, disciplining God. It is not the grace of a teddy bear. It is a a king, a powerful, wise king, holy king, just king. He is the one who shows us grace. And it's when we've come to terms with that, when we've recognized this is the God who's offering us grace, we're ready for the fourth truth about grace. And the fourth truth is this, is that grace comes even to the worst of sinners. Grace is available even to the worst of sinners. And, um, and I want to show you this by focusing on Levi. Uh, Levi, um, because God um, makes 
this same pronouncement to Simeon and Levi. They both have this prophetic prayer put over them. And these two men are murderers. They're murderers. And they, not just murderers. not just like they killed one guy. They massacred a whole town. And, uh, and um, the severity of, um, of this sin is so severe. And so God has to expose their sin. But hidden in this statement is a grace. Now listen to this. Let me read this again. Read with me again. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Now listen to this last statement. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Hidden in that last statement is actually a word of grace. Because uh, for Simeon, what that's going to mean, actually Simeon's tribe is going to be absorbed into the southern tribe of Judah. And they're kind of going to disappear. But what does that mean for Levi when he's going to be scattered into Israel? Do you know what that means? They become the priesthood. They become the Levites. They become the pastors of God's people. And, uh, and what the Lord says is all these other people, their inheritance, all the other tribes when they go into the promised land are going to get land. Do you know what the promise that Levi's children is going to be? Their portion is God himself. And they're going to have this status where they're now going to teach this whole people of God about grace. The people who have come from the murderer are now going to be the ones that are most capable to teach about the grace of the God who has called this people to themselves. And um, there is a tremendous grace. And you remember um, uh, the original audience who is reading this, are the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're all listening to Moses, who's writing Genesis to them. And they're in, in uh, the desert after they've come out, come out of Egypt. And they're making these pronouncements about all these tribes, who they're going to become, and who they will become is Levi became the priests and the Levites. They became the pastors. They became the teachers. And so God chose for his servants from the descendants of a murderer. There is grace to even the worst sinners, even the worst this is, this is baffling. This is profound. And this is a pattern in Scripture, actually, of murderers. Um, the three most prolific writers in the Bible are all murderers. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, was a murderer. David, who wrote 78 of the Psalms. King David, who is the, the type of the Christ who is to come, was a murderer. The Apostle Paul who uh, became the great uh, apostle to the Gentiles, uh, uh, wrote 14 books of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. He was standing by at the stoning of Stephen in the, in the martyrdom of Stephen. God has chosen for his most intimate servants, the people that, these are the people that God is most intimate with, with Moses, David, and the Apostle Paul. He is most intimate with them, and their sins are the worst. And God is showing how deep his grace is, that it doesn't matter how, how bad you think your sins are. I assure you, these men are worse. And there was grace for them. And God said, come and know me. Come and receive uh, grace. And so when we come back to that question, what makes people good? 
what made Moses and, and David and uh, the Apostle Paul men who worshipped God and in, in ways sacrificed for other people, gave their lives away in, in compassion to other people, became, uh, loved God passionately? Was it because they tried to be good people? No. It was because they saw how incredibly sinful they were and yet God was kind to them. And the king, the holy, sovereign, disciplining God, the consuming fire came to them and he really wanted to show grace. He really wants to show grace to us. And you know what? That's not just at the beginning of your Christian life. Some of you say, oh yeah, when I become a Christian, God will forgive all my sins and then now i got to really tough it out. Let me just tell you, you've, you've been walking with the Lord. You're a member of his church. You're a part of the body of Christ. Even if you've been walking with Christ for decades, you think God doesn't want to show you that grace this morning? Show it to you again? Does he not know that you're struggling with sin? And that you, even though you think I should, have this, I should have my life figured out by now, if he is going to show grace to Levi who massacred a city and, and, and make him a servant, an intimate servant in his house, how much more will he do that for us who are here? He gladly does that. He wants you to know his grace, that he really loves you. And you can come to him. And, um, and I'll just... Let me just say that this was absolutely my experience of God when I first became a Christian. You know, I had never been to church. I knew zero about the Bible. And, uh, and, and when I came to God as, as a 15-year-old dropout on drugs, I ran away from home and hated my parents, whatever sin it is, when I went to God to pray, he received me just as I was as a sinner. And, he, and, he, and this is the thing that you need to hear, is that when you feel a sense of desperation, when you feel your spiritual poverty, even if you've been walking with the Lord for decades, and you say, I need forgiveness, I need grace, I, I still can't worship God and love my neighbor, I need your grace, that desperation draws God to you. It draws his heart, it draws his com compassion. He's near to you, he wants to hear from you. That's the kind of heart that our God has. That's the kind of God that we see in this Bible. Um, and so this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion tries to change you by giving you a technique or give you disciplines of ways that you can improve, self-help, that you can improve your life, that you can save yourself. Christianity says, I come with nothing in my hand and I need you to receive me and to love me. And God does. He receives the broken and the poor. And he says, I'll embrace you and I'll bring you in my home and I'll make you part of my family. So now the question is, this is the last thing about grace. So the question is, how could such tenderness come from a God that is, who is so holy, who is so sovereign, this king who is so powerful, he's in control of everything, and he's just, and, and he, you know, he has to stand against selfishness and, and wickedness. How, how can those two things come together, tenderness and power and control and holiness? How can they be in the same God? And this is the last thing about grace that we see in this passage, is that grace comes through the cross. Grace comes through the cross. And you see here in, in verse 7, that word that shows up, cursed be their anger. This is what he says about Simeon and Levi. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Now that word cursed, if you've read through the book of Genesis, that's a word that's shown, that showed up earlier in the book of Genesis. And you go all the way back to the fall of man. And uh, when Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and they disobeyed him and, and death was coming upon them in sin and they were going to live in sin. And the way that uh, Genesis describes it is that their life in the earth is going to be cursed. 
And with some of you, that word, I don't know if about for you, but that's a powerful word to me. I, I think that it describes what life in this world is like. I look at the world, and it seems so beautiful. You know, the trees and the birds and the animals, and, and life in some ways seems so beautiful, and yet it is so hard to live in this world. It feels like we're living in, under a curse. And that's what the Bible says sin has done, is it has put our, our humanity under a curse, under a darkness. And here is that curse again. Um, but how does grace come to a cursed world? And the Apostle Paul, the murderer, the one who had come to experience grace and then gave his whole life to proclaiming the gospel, to proclaiming grace to all the nations of the world, this is what he said happened with that curse in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us. That, that means he freed us. He, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He took our curse for us. And we look at Levi's curse there. That was the curse that, that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He, he came in Levi's place and bore the, the curse for him so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so um, let me just ask you uh, today whether uh, you're not a Christian or whether you've been walking with the Lord, uh, like I said, for years and decades. Do you know grace? Have you gone to the Holy King, the powerful God who's in control of all things, and stood before him trembling and found out that he's really kind uh, to the worst of sinners and that he will receive you and be in awe and led into worship by him? Let me just uh, encourage you that if, uh, if you need to accept grace for the first time, this is all you do. You tell God, I see how deeply sinful my heart is. And, I re uh, and receive me now because of the grace that is in Jesus. And I tell you that he will. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will, no I will not cast you out. I will, not, uh, you, you, I will not be repelled from you. I will embrace you. And when you do that, your heart will be softened and grace will live inside you and it will transform your life. So let's pray together.